Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This week it's a refereeing special. I've got one of the game's leading officials, Brendan Moore, with me to answer a few refereeing questions, maybe a few rules questions later on as well. But first of all, Brendan, uh, how did you get involved in snooker? What was your introduction to the sport? Uh, back in 2002, uh, I was then and still am the captain of a team in Sheffield and I just thought it'd be worth doing a referee's course to, to know the rules, which I did, enjoyed it. I started refereeing a few games in the Sheffield and the Yorkshire area and then in 2004, I did a European under-19 event in Wellingborough with the likes of Judd Trump, uh, Mark Allen, Jamie Jones, they were there. And Len Ganley was the senior referee on site. He basically liked what he saw, phoned Will Snooker, which is his son, Mike Ganley, who's TV. Yep. Um, he got in touch with me and said, come along, let's have a look. And that was my way in. Did you harbour ambitions to be a player, though? Because I suppose being an official, it's a rather unusual ambition, maybe... Um, yeah, I mean, I used to play junior tournaments in Sheffield when I was a kid, uh, and then even from an early age, you know you're not going to be the level that you need to be. Yep. Uh, and after 16, 17 year old, I just stopped playing the game altogether. Mm. And I've got to be honest, becoming a referee didn't even cross my mind. Mm. It's only when I did that event in 2004 mm. that I thought that I enjoyed it. And when I got the call up to try the qualifiers at World Snooker, I completely fell for it. Mm. And what was it about what, what what was it about refereeing that you enjoyed? Um, just being involved in the game I mean the standard of play um, being around people like Jan Bahas, Paul Collier Aaron Williams they were the top refs and learning from them um, and I do even though I stopped playing it for 10 years I've always loved it I still love being around it and like I say I suppose it's any any officials will tell you the same it's the next best thing mm. Uh, to actually play in the game, at least you're, you're involved. Mm. Because you're a Sheffield man and you were a bus driver, weren't you? That's what you were doing, actually um, famously driving past the Crucible and all that. Is, is that actually true? Was your route past the Crucible? Yeah, it's true. Every, <laughs> every day, or well, five days a week, mm. nearly every route that you drive in Sheffield yes. goes past the Crucible at some point. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I did that for nine, ten years. Mm. Um, I did love it while I was doing it, but for the last year or so of it, I got a bit fed up. Mm. Um, and my wife's a childminder. I, took a, I stopped bus driving, did a year with her, till I could find something else to do mm. and fell into this basically yeah. it, was, it was I always tell the same story right place right time mm. in, in Wellingborough 
you seemed to rise to the top pretty quickly, didn't you, from that first event that you mentioned? What was the sort of path to becoming like an established TV ref? Well, my first game was in 2005, a qualifying event. Um, never forget, David Rowe, Patrick Wallace. Okay. He'll tell you himself, Patrick, he had a 1-3-6 total clearance in the very first frame I refed, and right. I thought... It's easy, this. I love this. <laughs> Just fish pulls out. Yeah, <laughs> that was it, yeah. and then it went from then it went. We got <laughs> it went harder from there. Um, but no, that was two thousand five, uh, and then I got invited to do quite a few qualifying events, mm. and I went up to um, Aberdeen for the Grand Prix when we had it up there. Did my first TV game in two thousand eight, I think it was. Um, yeah, and like you said, just it seems to be. Oh, it's 11 years ago now, but it's just seemed, it just seems to be quick when it, when it took off at the start. Were, uh, you, were you nervous going into that first match, the, the first match you mentioned, Wallace and David Rowe? Um, yes and no. Yes, because I wasn't... It's the first time I'd done it. Mm. Uh, and no, because I've always had the same mentality even now. No one's there for me. Yeah. Whether it's a qualifier or a world final, they're there for the players. So mm. as long as I do my thing, uh, although back then it wasn't as good as what I'd... Uh, as confident as what I am now, mm. but yeah, you learn. Mm. Yeah, so I wasn't nervous, but no, you learn from it, and it was good. I what, enjoyed it. What about t- uh, first TV match though? Because obviously that is different. You have got the cameras there. You know, people are watching for a start at, yeah. at home. Yeah, I was nervous then mm. um, because you know any any mistake you make is magnified, mm. and we've all been there and done it. Yeah, I'm not daft enough to say that I've never made mistakes. Yeah, of course I have. Um, but again, that's another. Uh, it's, well, you, I don't know, you can't get nervous doing that. Like I say, it's all about the players. Even if you make a mistake, you've got to learn from it. Mm. Never do it again. Um, but, yeah. Okay. So, say someone listening to this now wants to be a referee. What is the... How do they become it? Obviously, there's different grades, aren't there? So, how do you go about getting that first grade, for example? Right, brand new referee gets in touch with their uh, national governing body. So, obviously, in England, the ESB... Um, they contact those guys and they will find the local examiner for them mm. and they'll go along, have a seminar, learn all the rules, do their exams, pass that and become a Class 3, which means they can referee in their local league games and all the ESP competitions. And I think it's just changed to four years now from start to starting your Class 3 to progressing through to Class 1. Mm. It's only four years now. So what would that first exam be? It's questions about the rules. It's You've got to learn the rules. The rules. Yeah. It's just the rules. I mean, we take a seminar, which takes about three hours, going through the rule book word for mm. word, making sure they understand it all. Then we have a second seminar, about three hours again, actually at a table, which is all practical, mm. uh, all the different situations. And then uh, a week later, give them an hour, an hour and a half exam, again on the rules. But the class three is, is very basic, just to make sure you know what you're doing. Uh, and then especially I can only comment on myself in Sheffield um, once they pass their exam we'll give them a game to do and I'll go along with them for the first three or four games um, give them some pointers on what they're doing right what they're doing wrong position etc then leave them to it for a few months and then go back again and watch mm. them give them more pointers see how they're going mm. and just nurture them along mm. because like you say it's not just actually knowing the rules it's also where you stand mm-hmm. how you conduct yourself they always say like the sign of good officials you don't notice them They'll be getting in the players' way, do. And I guess that's something you learn as you go along. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've got referee myself when you first start. Um, yeah, I was in the way because mm. you don't know until somebody shows you where you. I mean, we can all say we watch it on TV, but we'll also say never watch a TV ref, especially mm. at the Crucible, because you cannot stand in the right place. No, yeah. it's so Too small. So, small. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you you learn from well your own experience of being a player's way. I mean, a player will tell you quickly if you're in the way. <laughs> 
Uh, but that's that's the next step for them. They get the experience. They've got someone who can show them where they should stand. More importantly, it's not just a case of showing them where they stand. It's telling them why they stand there and why they shouldn't stand at another particular place. But also, you have to react to different players. I mean, you refereeing Ronnie, for example. He plays so quickly. Actually, you can't kind of get out of the way at some no. point. You have to, I guess, just stay still, don't you? Yeah. Well, like you say, Ronnie's one of the players where if you put a colour on the spot and he's ready on his next shot, stand still. Mm. He doesn't want you moving. Mm. Where there's other players who want you to spot it and they'll wait for you to move to get out of the way. Mm. And again, it's a, it's an experience thing. Mm. It comes knowing the players and you know who wants you to stand still, who wants you to move. Uh, and it, it's, it's a slow process. You get to you get the respect of the players. Mm. Um, they know what you're like. You know what they're like. Mm. And in terms of um, you know, you, you, if you're a snooker player, young snooker player, you might look up to Ronnie O'Sullivan or Stephen Hendry. Do you sort of have refereeing heroes you look up to and maybe watch how they do, do it and sort of try and copy them? Yeah, when I first started, like I say, I was never into getting into refereeing at the start. But once I first um, did my first qualifying event, it was um, Jan. Uh, area and Paul, Paul Colley was actually my first mentor, mm. and there was John Newton and Colin Brindhead mm. at those times. They were the one that took me under the, wing, under the wings. Mm. Um, so yeah, those guys. No, no one in particular. I like to think that my particular refereeing is a bit of all those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So hopefully somebody coming through will put a bit of me in there as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, being a Sheffield boy, it must have been to to, to uh, referee the first time at the Crucible. That must have been a, a proud moment because not just because it's. You're in Sheffield, but it's the World Championship. It's where it's the pinnacle, I guess, for an official, isn't it? And particularly, of course, when you went and did the final as well. Yeah, the first time, 2008. Um, Stuart Bingham and Steve Davis was my okay. first scheduled game mm. on the Monday. So I've got two days of the tournament marking to get mm. used to it. But on the Sunday night, uh, I think it was Peter Edden and Mark King, and Alan Chamberlain was refereeing, and he was ill. Right. And it was a case of, right, go get your suit on your refereeing. Mm. So the, I didn't have any time for the nerves mm. to kick in there. So that was a great, a great moment. Mm. Um, but the Monday when I did my own game properly, and he got my dad was in the crowd, my wife was in the crowd. Yeah, it was a big moment for my dad as well as me because he always said he'd never come and watch me live until it was the Crucible. Right. Uh, and then that was a. I think I did a quarter final that first year, mm. and then that just progressed. And then, like you said, two thousand fourteen when I did the final itself, mm. you, you can't. You can't beat that. There's no way mm. to go from there unless you do another one. Mm. But I just, I'll never forget that moment. How did you feel walking out then for the, for the start? I mean, were the, were the nerves there? Was it pride? What, how were you feeling? I was fine. I set the table up and had a coffee, and I was actually a bit nervous. I wasn't nervous. Right, yeah, I'm yeah. thinking, where were the nerves? I thought they'd come. But when I was stood backstage, I was listening to Rob Walker, mm. and he got the crowd revved up, and he was like, he was introducing me as one of your own. He lives mm. five minutes away, mm. and all of a sudden it was like. Mm. <laughs> it hit home then so mm. as soon as I threw the, walked through the curtain for the first time ever I was actually concentrating on making my feet move Yeah. <laughs> uh, for the first five minutes when I walked out took a, I mean I've actually seen it on TV I take a big deep breath mm. uh, very emotional moment because um, like they said it was the first time that the refs had a, a, quite a few people standing up yeah, clapping yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, obviously that's because I was a local guy yeah. but you'll never I'll never ever replicate that mm. even if I do a second third fourth world final you never replicate that first moment of walking out mm. um, family and friends in there as well mm. as everybody else watching the final mm. but that first just that two minutes walking out when it is about you mm. and not the players it, it, yeah incredibly proud mm. uh, two minutes it was it was great never okay. forget that brilliant can you take us to a sort of a referee's day say you're refereeing maybe at one o'clock at the Masters or something what is your preparation what do you do in the morning leading up to the match 
Right, once we're in the venue, the masters will take an example. If it starts at one o'clock, we'll get there half eleven, quarter to twelve. Um, get you into the dress suit, make sure I've got the gloves and the triangle ready. And we don't actually put the balls on the table till thirty minutes before start of play. But we'll go out, check the equipment, make sure everything's where it should be and that it's all working. Put the balls on the table half hour before. Go find both players. Introduce yourselves, like which table we're on. Obviously, the Masters only one table. What time we're going, where we're going to meet. Then just go and get a coffee, a sandwich, sit down and just have a chat, read the papers until it's time to go. So it's kind of the same routine wherever you are. You go, you know, set aside the right amount of time before it starts and it's basically just the same routine. Yeah, I'll do that whether it's a qualifier for yeah. a PTC event, say, mm. or with a world final. Mm. Majority of us do the same routine. Mm. Day in, day out. And what do you bring with you? What, what equipment do you bring with you? Obviously the gloves everyone knows. What, what else have you got? Yeah, I've got my triangle, I've got my <coughs> gloves, I've got uh, two ball markers, obviously for cleaning a ball and checking the, uh, the spots. Um, I have a £5 coin okay. for tossing the coin up, a pen in my pocket, and that's it. Mm. That's it for a, a TV game. Mm. If you're doing a qualifying game, uh, obviously you've got a notepad and the match sheet. Mm. But other than that, that's just a standard referee's equipment. And these may seem like dumb questions, but I think people want to know, where do you get a triangle from? Where do you get the gloves from? But you can't buy them in on the high street, can you? Well, the triangles are tough at the moment because the tournament triangles we've been using, um, nobody can seem to find them. You find them on eBay right. once in a blue moon, yeah. and they go for silly money. Yeah. Um, but then we found a guy down south that was making some triangles, so the coloured ones that you see us all using, we've got blue, green, red. Um, he's actually stopped making those. So the triangles are at the moment a little bit, um, a little bit tough to um, to come by. Uh, the gloves, they're another one as well. They're hard to find. We we tend to bring a lot of those back in from China when we go over, over there now for the events. How many would you get through like pairs of gloves? Say in a, in a week in a tournament. A week. Um, it depends how many matches or sessions yeah. you referee. But if uh, if you were a qualifying event that took five days, so that's ten matches. I'd probably use. Just five pairs of gloves, okay. a different pair, a pair a day for both matches, mm. depending on the state of them, maybe swap mm. them over, but mm. I can go through, the amount of games I ref, I can go through 20 pairs a season, mm. I suppose. The thing that I, I admire about the refs is the concentration, we always talk about players having to concentrate, but you have to as well, and, and like you say, if you make any sort of mistake, it's seized upon, so... How do you do that? I mean, specifically when you get really long frames, really long matches, and you're known for doing deciders as well. That's your <laughs> yeah. kind of speciality is you yeah. do deciders. How do you sort of keep going? Is it literally just sort of training? Um, I don't know. I mean, me personally, um, it's very important. You can't let your mind wander, like you said, because you know when the player's sat down, he can switch off for a minute or whatever. Um, but I tend to, quite often, just to keep my mind focused, I'll count the reds on the table. Right. Because uh, on our new scoring system, it shows you how many should be on. Mm. I'll have a glance up and have a count, and then mm. any, anything that just keeps you concentrating. Mm. Mm. Um, but like I said, on safety, you've got a long safety bout, uh, constantly looking around the table, mm. the different points of where the cue ball is, just to keep, because it's easy to lose your concentration. Mm. So, yeah, just. Because some of the tournaments, obviously, the PTC events, you know, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of tables and sort of things happening. And even like at York, there's no partitions now. So there's other matches going on. You've got to be, be careful, to, I guess, to just concentrate on your own one and not sort of look around. Yeah, well, again, I can only speak personally, but I, I am focused on that. I don't look at the others. Mm. You can't take your mind off your own table for one minute because if you do, uh, I mean, I have seen it years ago 
at a tournament that wasn't a professional tournament where a referee was concentrating on the other table that much. Yeah. There was a foul on that table and he actually called a foul and it wasn't his <laughs> table. So I could, I could see how it could easily be done so I wouldn't mm. want to put myself in that situation. Mm. Without wishing to lower the tone, but there's a lot of talk about toilet breaks for players and how many times they can go out and so on. You never see the referees, apart from at the interval obviously you go to the toilet, but you know you could be stuck out there three, four hours at a time. Do you ever... Do you ever need to go? Yeah, I have once or twice, right. but I think the trick is not to drink as much. Yeah, yeah. Which is easier said than done, because if you're at the, the Crucible, where it is a small, warm, warm, mm. warm uh, arena, you do want to drink. Mm. I mean, luckily, I mean, it's only every four frames, so the only chance we get to drink is at the end of a frame, yeah. whereas the players are doing it every time yeah, they get back yeah. to the table. That's the difference. But, yeah, I've been caught once or twice <laughs> wanting to go. Right. Different venues have different atmospheres. We know the Crucible's really intimate. Alexandra Palace tends to be a bit rowdier. What, what do you prefer? Do you like a sort of big crowd or, or do you like it sort of quiet and straightforward? No. Well, I don't <coughs> mind the quiet, yeah, but the bigger crowd, the better. Mm. Um, I love the Crucible, whether it's two or one table. But, mm. I mean, like the Ali Palo when I did the final, 17, 1,800 people in there. That's like twice as many as the Crucible. Mm. But a very similar atmosphere in different ways because mm. of the size of the arenas. Um, but no, I don't mind it if it's noisy and rowdy, as long as they're respectful and the players on the shot. But they keep you on your toes, don't they? I mean, it's certainly, it's usually at night, isn't it, when people have a few drinks. You yeah. have to sort of be authoritative from the start, don't you, and make sure they know you're, you are in control. Yeah. Well, I mean, so far, touch wood, from my point of view, I, I seem to do, I am all right in yeah. that regard. They do seem to listen. Um, I hope it doesn't come, up, doesn't come across like I'm being too abrupt. Mm. But like you say, you've got to be fair, I'm there for the players. Mm. As long as they're quiet for the players, that's the main thing. Mm. It strikes me, whenever I see sort of refs, certainly like in a bar at night, they get together and they sort of talk about arcane rules that probably won't come up in a match, but they're kind of hoping they do because they're looking for a way of sort of getting a solution. You do like as a group to sort of discuss all that stuff, don't you? Uh, <laughs> be well, you say you like, they do. No, to be honest, once the match is finished, I don't want to talk right. about snooker anymore. But if you're in that conversation where it happens, yeah, I don't mind... Uh, I don't like the conversations of what if. Mm. I hate those questions. I'd rather talk about this has happened, how did I deal with it right, mm. what should I do? I don't like people that sit home and say, right, what if this happens? Because mm. um, nine times out of ten, they're the ones that never happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are the sort of incidents that are the worst from a referee's point of view to deal with? I mean, one that came to my mind was the sort of simultaneous hit where yeah. you're not quite sure you know, what ball's been hit and we've seen famous examples of that on, on TV. Would that be one of the worst yeah, ones? Yeah, that's, that's the hardest one for mm. me. Um, and push shots are pretty hard to call as well. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the times you are, and to be fair, we have got... I mean, the, the pro players are great. They'll always own up to it. Mm. Um, but a lot of the time you are relying mm. on a player's honesty and a push shot. Um, I mean, we can call the blatant ones, mm. but I'm the first to admit there's ones that I haven't called that a player stood up straight away and said it was a push shot. Mm. Um, but the so difference is they feel it, don't they? Obviously, yeah, they're going to yeah. feel it on the, with a cue. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they feel the double hit. But like I say, I've not known one player that's not been honest in that regard. Mm. I mean, I've had people where they've called a foul, and I'm thinking to myself, was it? Mm. So no, that's off to the players for that. But yeah, definitely the hardest one is the simultaneous hit, especially when it's hit at pace. If in doubt, there's no way you can mm. call it. Mm. It's a very tough rule, that one. Mm. And has anything ever happened where, and it has been a bit, as I say, arcane, a bit sort of out of the ordinary, and you've just thought, I don't know what, I don't know what the rule is here. I think, is it, has your mind sort of gone blank like that? No, I mean, we have this conversation a lot with referees mm. about when they ask questions, and the one thing that me, Jan and Paul always say as assessors, 
don't worry about it. When it happens, you will deal with it. Whether yeah. it's right or wrong, you'll automatically, inst- uh, instinctively react. Mm. And nine times out of ten, your initial reaction is the right one. But if it's wrong, somebody will tell you after. But no, I don't think... It's one of those that you can ask any question you want but, and you can say, I'll give me a chance to think about it. Mm. But once you're out there, you'll just you'll just give a, a reaction. Hopefully it's the right one. Mm. Do players ever query the decisions? Because I get the impression they don't necessarily all read the rule book cover to cover and things happen now and again, <laughs> things happen now and, again and they maybe they don't know themselves quite what the rule is. Um, yeah, I, I'd be surprised <coughs> if there was a player that knows all the rules, to be fair. And obviously I mean that all respectfully. Yeah. But... Um, I don't know. Uh, you get, you do get questioned at the start because mm. obviously they don't know you, and I won't be surprised if from thinking, well, does this ref really know what they're doing? Mm. I suppose that's just human nature with every sport you do. Yeah. Uh, but the more you do it, the more finals you do, the more respect you earn. Um, no, I, I don't think, I don't think any of the top people get um, asked by the players. Mm. Are you sure as much? Mm. The one rule that it always kind of stands out is the miss rule, and it's mm. sort of had various iterations down the years. And actually, the players a couple of years ago were asked if they wanted to sort of change it, and they said no. But it's, it always seems the World Championship is such a long tournament. At some point, there's going to be like a call that a commentator disagrees with or something, and there's going to be some sort of trouble over it. Is well, you, you can't say if the miss rule is right or wrong because you're there to uh, enforce it. But is it sort of a difficult rule sometimes? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean. Uh, people keep talking about the amateur rules and the professional mm. rules. No such thing. There's only there's only one set of rules yeah. that we abide by. The difference is in the professional game, obviously, with the standard of the player, it's applied differently. Um, but whether it be referees or players, I mean, everybody knows with the misrule, no player should win or lose mm. a frame on the misrule. But it's in the rule book, and we apply it as it is, um, as harsh as it can be sometimes. The hard thing is when you do use your... Uh, your common sense on it you seem to get <laughs> battered for it for want mm. of a better word mm. um, the times that referees have used common sense and mm. leniency uh, yeah it can be a tough one but while ever it's in the rule book you've got to apply as it is mm. but you also have to be confident I guess enough to stand by whatever decision you make to stand by and, and, and to justify if it needs to be justified well that's the main thing as a ref and we always say that to all the referees no matter what decision it is whether it's a free ball or the missed situation, mm. providing you can justify your call mm. and explain if needed and it's not just guesswork, then we'll always stand by that mm. referee with the decision. Mm. The other sort of controversy that comes up now and again is slow play and people say, well, there should be a rule uh, to stop it, but there is actually a time-wasting rule, but it's a little bit... Um, it's, it's not that clear exactly what it means, because it, it is down, I think, to the discretion of the ref. Can you clear up what that rule is exactly? Well, it's a hard one, because... Um, what is slow play? Mm. I mean, there are players out there that we know are slow, but it's their, they're not slow on purpose, it's their way around the table. Yeah. But if you use, for example, someone like Tony Drago, really quick, if his average shot time is 20 seconds, all of a sudden he's taking 40, does that mean he's being slow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's a very difficult one. The, the way we gauge it is, if, there's, if the player is just, there's only one ready can go for and the shot's obvious and he's taking two minutes over that shot... Mm then we'll be thinking we need to have a word um, and speed up the shot time. That's the way to look at it. Mm. Um, but it's, it's, and again, it's a tough one. Mm. It is a tough one. But if you've got three or four, if you snookered 
or you've got three or four different reds to go for, we know they're going to have a look round. Mm. Like I said, the one where there's only one shot to play and we all know which one it should be, mm. if they're then taking two minutes, that's when you need to step in. Mm. What's it like being on the, on the circuit? Because you, now that you're one of the top referees, you go all around the world with, with snooker. I mean, is it, is it enjoyable? Yeah, I love it. I would never change this job mm. for any other job. Mm. Um, I definitely consider myself lucky doing it. Because mm. like, as well as refereeing, I'm on the assessing side now, which I really enjoy. So I go to PTCs and my job now is with Jan and Paul is training referees up. Mm. And I get just as much enjoyment out of that. Um, I mean, I got the greatest email and messages off the rest when I did my world final. Mm. And my job now, as far as I'm concerned, is to train somebody up, bring them through, so that they do the world final. Mm. And I know I've, I've had my part in that. Mm. Um, but yeah, I love my job, love the travelling, love the refing, mm. love the group that we work with. Mm. Would never want to change it. And what sort of interest is there from wannabe referees? Because it seems certainly on the on the TV and the European tour events, there's people from all sorts of nationalities now getting involved in, in refereeing. Yeah, well, we've got the we've got the really young ones, males, females, older refs coming through. Like you say, all sorts of nationalities. Um, in Wales, we've had them from Australia, Bulgaria, all over yeah. Europe, and obviously the British. Um, I don't know why why it's just suddenly. <laughs> There seems to be more referees involved than players at the moment. <laughs> but it's great. Yeah. Um, like I said, male, female, young, goal. Mm. Bring them all through. The more we've got, the better. The more people to work with. You know, you, famously, you know, Steve Davis or Ronnie O'Sullivan, as a young kid, people could spot their potential immediately. Can you sort of, from a crowd of refer- one of your referees, say, yeah, he is the guy or she's the woman that's going to reach the top? Is it, yeah. is it, can you do that? Yeah, you can, yeah. You can see some. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I would, I'm not going to name names on here, but yeah. there's a couple that... We already know that with a bit of guidance, mm. yeah, they're definitely going to ref at the Crucible and maybe do a world final. Mm. And again, there's ones that you can look at, it's like, they'll need more work. Mm. But yeah, you can, you can spot the ones. Mm. And do you have, what's your sort of ambition now? Because you've refereed the world final, is it, is it to do it again? I mean, or is it just to carry on enjoying it, I guess? I'll always enjoy it. I mean, the aim is to do another world final. Mm. But it's one of those, now. if I never do one, I've done it. Yeah. So whatever comes after that is a bonus. Mm. But my next aim now is, like I say, on the assessing side, mm. bring somebody else through that they can follow my footsteps. And ultimately, um, I'd like to get in the tournament directing side of it. Okay. Um, that's what Paul Collier does. He does his refing, his assessing, mm. and in the tournament office, that's the role that I want to, mm. to next go. We'll take the world final you did as a given. Is there any other match you've done where you look back on and think, wow, that was great to be involved in? Yeah. First time I ref the UK final. Uh, 2010 I believe when John Higgins beat Mark Williams okay, 10-9 yeah. Yeah. Um, just everything about that day my first of the three majors as it were finals the fact that it was 9-6 needed a snooker come by everything that came with the atmosphere everything it was the standard was phenomenal mm. so as far as you're concerned you're going to sort of keep donning the white gloves as, as long as you can as long as they'll let me yeah brilliant yeah. excellent Brendan it's been great to talk to you and uh, to all referees out there, get in touch with your local associations and maybe one day we'll see you at the Crucible. And thanks for listening, everyone. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.